You're listening to the EFC Podcast. My name is Karen Stiller from Faith Today magazine. We are all concerned about abuse in the church. Who wouldn't be? Plan to Protect is a program used by thousands of Canadian churches to make sure they are doing things like screening employees and volunteers and helping to protect children, youth, and vulnerable adults. Today, we are speaking with Melody Bissell, director of Plan to Protect. She joins the podcast today. Thanks, Melody. Hi, Karen. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you. So um, I realized I said thousands of churches using Plan to Protect. I was kind of going out on a limb there. I meant to actually check that. How many Canadian churches use Plan to Protect? Well, you are correct. It oh, is thousands. Okay. We have, um, we have 14 denominations in Canada that have private label Plan to Protect manual for their churches or have licensed to distribute a Plan to Protect policy to their churches. From our best understanding, we're close to about 12,500 churches in Canada using Plan to Protect. Wow, that's pretty impressive because uh, a latest number I heard was 30,000 churches in Canada in total, roughly. So you're getting to the halfway mark. Yeah, it's exciting. Now tell us, when we are talking about preventing abuse and protecting vulnerable sectors in our church, what exactly are we talking about? What kind of abuse? Why this protection? What kind of things are we helping to solve here? Okay, well, at Plan to Protect, we focus on all forms of abuse. So physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, neglect, and financial abuse, um, spiritual abuse. But from the incidences of abuse that we hear about, the most prevalent form of abuse happening within churches would be emotional abuse and sexual abuse. But the most prevalent form of abuse reported on behalf of church leaders to child and family services um, of abuse that happens among their kids that they hear about would be physical abuse, neglect, and domestic violence. Okay, so I hear you saying that there's maybe two very broad areas. So we're talking about abuse that can happen in the church, and we're also talking about church workers or volunteers or members noticing potential signs of abuse in the people who may attend the church, primarily children. Is that right? Right. So Plan to Protect is about abuse awareness, what's happening within our communities, abuse that could be happening within family units. So obviously there is opportunities where kids may be sitting around a campfire and they'll share their stories of abuse with their youth groups or the Sunday school teachers may see indicators of abuse. So we want to help raise awareness of, of abuse that's happening in Canada, you know, around the world, but we also want to prevent abuse from happening within our churches. Okay, let's tackle that first, the abuse that happens within the congregation. You mentioned spiritual abuse, and the second type, did you say emotional abuse? Well, I would say the most prevalent forms of abuse that we're hearing about from our clients would be probably emotional abuse and sexual abuse that's happening within the churches. That's the type of abuse that we're hearing about. Okay, can you, um, let's define the terms uh, to help us all understand. So when we talk about emotional abuse in a church, what are we typically looking at? Well, that could be anything from um, belittling Um, ignoring, isolating, criticizing, teasing, mocking. It could be spiritual abuse. That would be emotional abuse. Emotional abuse that happens, obviously, at home could also include domestic violence. 
but abuse within the churches that we're hearing about is isolation, harassment, um, discrimination. That would all be under the category of emotional abuse. And what is spiritual abuse? Help me understand that term. Well, it's when we use our belief system to either coerce someone to believe the way we believe, and we use wrongful tactics and pressure tactics to encourage someone to believe what we believe and not allowing them to make their own choices. Okay. Can you, can you um, give us, whether it's real or not, but a, a scenario that would help people understand a, a harsh form of that? Like, just tell me a little story that will capture that. Well, there's been a number of incidences of abuse that have happened even within um, just under Truth and Reconciliation, right, where um, children have either been taken away from their homes or told not to believe what their parents believe, or they have been forced to memorize scripture, even lack of sleep um, and sleep deprivation in church settings or youth group settings where they are encouraging people to believe what they want to believe. But I also even hear it to the point where someone has been discharged as a volunteer because they may not follow the exact belief system. They will be able to sign a statement of faith and belief of the church, and they embrace scriptural teaching. But because they may not get along with a youth pastor or an associate pastor or the senior pastor or even the board, um, they're treated with alienation. Um, and dismissed as volunteers. So that would also fall under emotional abuse. Got it. Let me um, push back a little bit, just anticipating some questions that, you know, a listener may have, like, because I think also churches may say, well, you know, hypothetically, that's my right to, you know, we get to pick who volunteers and so on. How do you respond to that? What does a plan to protect response look like there? I just don't think that the church always knows how to let people go graciously. Um, We don't often follow um, progressive steps of discipline. Mm. Um, We can alienate someone from their church and their friends and not do it well, you know. And I think that as a church, we need to do things well and still show respect and honor the person and help them understand if they're not on board with us in the direction of the church. But I think just to shun someone and not follow progressive steps of discipline or not give people a fair hearing, I think does an injustice to the church and to the volunteers. Yeah, well, we probably all have a, a bad story that we can share about watching someone be dismissed from a Christian organization or a church and have it not be done perfectly well. That's that's for sure. When we're talking about um, really clear cases of the need for protection within a church, let's say Sunday school teacher training or guidelines for the pastor counseling someone, let's talk about that if we can, Melody, that I think is really clear to people. What are some of the minimal levels of protection we need to have in our churches. Let's say to protect the pastor, even we can look at it that way as well. It's it's also protecting the pastor and it's protecting the people he or she might be serving. So what sort of recommendations do you make for churches? And I think that's one of the, um, the, the myths of plan to protect, that we're just protecting the children or just protecting the youth. But plan to protect is all about protecting 
the children, youth, and vulnerable adults, but also protecting those that um, serve among children, youth, and vulnerable adults, and also the protecting the church. And I think um, something I've spent a lot of time researching and trying to understand is this responsibility that we have as a church to demonstrate our duty of care to our volunteers and staff members. Mm -hmm. And they also have a duty to care for the church. And so we unpack in our Train the Trainer course and in our Administrator Leader course this discussion about what is our duty of care to each other. So I think one of the minimum things that every church should have in place is a dedicated administrator who knows um, plan to protect or abuse prevention really well and also a dedicated trainer who can communicate the importance of abuse prevention and protection and this duty of care to their volunteers. Um, So that's one of the things that I think that every church should have in place or any ministry should have in place is that administrator and trainer. And then um, the administrator, what they should be doing minimally is um, making sure their policies are up to date and current. And then to make sure that they're screening their volunteers and staff and making sure that they know how to manage that documentation process and be able to um, have good documentation control so that they have that documentation if they ever need to lean on it and and use, you know, draw it um, forward and bring it forward. Um, the trainer should be able to provide orientation, initial training for all their volunteers and staff, and then annual refresher training. Okay. And um, the documentation and the screening, we're talking about police checks, I assume, and then any like internal applications the church might require. Is that what what you mean? Okay. So when we talk about screening, we're talking about more than criminal record checks. We're talking about really vetting all your volunteers and staff through application, interview, reference checks, a criminal background check, and then making sure that that individual has been trained in abuse prevention and they sign a covenant of care that they will follow the policies and procedures and training that the church has provided. And then the documentation management, there's no statute of limitations on child abuse in Canada, Karen. That means someone can come forward in 30, 40, 50 years from now and file a lawsuit against a person um, that abused them. And they also could easily name the church or the denomination or the ministry that enabled that person to abuse them. So if you're ever called into a court of law, having that documentation in place would help protect the church and the denomination if they are able to demonstrate that they did everything in their power to prevent the abuse from happening. Do some churches or some people in some churches, I guess I'm asking, um, push back? Like I'm imagining, you know, Harry, who's been going to the same church for 40 years, and now he's going to volunteer, and all of a sudden he has to get a criminal check and provide references. Like, does that kind of disrupt community in a way that is difficult? Oh, we hear that pushback all the time. Yeah. And I have thick skin because of it. Um, People, I mean, they say we know everybody, we trust Mm. everybody, we're all related. But from what we hear, 
many of the incidences of abuse that are happening in Canada or in small rural settings and even in ethnic churches. So I don't think any church is immune to abuse. And I think that it's all in the way we look at it and how we approach it. And I always say you can win over Grandma Johanna, who's been volunteering (laughs) for 60 years, by taking her to lunch and, you know, getting her criminal record check done at the same time you get yours done Mm. and asking her to be a, a role model to all the other volunteers that you'll be asking to do this. So it's all in the way that you approach it. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great suggestion for approaching Joanna, that's for sure. I can see if you put it in the context of love and also, again, protecting the whole church, then that must help people understand. Faith Today, in our November-December 2018 issue, we did a story about sexual harassment in the church, and you are in that story as a source. And you spoke to our writer and said, the more you trust someone, the deeper the betrayal. When we were talking in that article about when sexual harassment does happen in the church. So I wondered if we could talk about that for a minute. I can't imagine the potential damage to someone's faith when they are abused in the church. What happens when that happens? What happens to someone's faith? Well, my husband's a pastor, Karen, and one day a mom was going to bring her young son to see Scott at church, and she said, We're going to go see Pastor Scott today do you know who Pastor Scott is? And he says, he's the man that looks just like God. (laughs) And a precious comment out Mm -hmm. of the mouth of Mm -hmm. babes. But we look up to our church leaders. They're role models to us. They become sisters and brothers, right? We're a family within the church. And we do life on life with these people. We celebrate New Year's Eve together. We go on vacations together. You know, we do potlucks together. Yeah, We're community. So for someone who um, betrays that and someone who exploits that, it's more than just sexual abuse. It really becomes as Leonard Shengold, he's a, a clinical professor of psychiatry at New York University, and he actually calls it soul murder. Oh, boy. Um, that when the effects of child abuse and sexual abuse really murder someone's soul. And so I often use a quote in my training that a child that is abused outside the church, they question the existence of God. Mm. But for a child that is abused within the church, this then becomes their view of God. Because for this person, they represented God to that individual. Yeah. And Think about it. In church, in Sunday school, we say Jesus knows the number of hair on your head. He knows every thought you have. He's always, always with you. He never leaves you. Just imagine what that child feels like if someone is abusing them and they're wondering, well, either Jesus doesn't love me because he's here watching this happen and he's not stopping it, or God has allowed this to happen which I think is just such an incorrect view of who God is. Yeah, I mean, I can't help but think of the latest uh, tragic scandal um, to emerge from the Catholic Church, what we've heard about in the last couple of months with, you know, more and more victims coming forward. I mean, it's just overwhelming to think of the damage to those people, but also the damage just to the 
reputation of the church and the world, which I know is not the most important thing, but I mean, the whole faith takes a hit when these terrible stories happen and then come out. Yeah, and I I am um, pleased to see the response of the Catholic Church in some ways, different dioceses across Canada, and we've had the privilege to work with um, some of them. I'm headed to Montreal this weekend to the Archdiocese of Montreal, um, where they're gathering people from every parish together mm-hmm. for a day-long training on abuse prevention and protection. And they are responding, but the prevalence of abuse is um, so out there, and so many individuals have been abused. And it's not just within the Catholic Church. I know every denomination where we've worked with, where there's been incidences of abuse. But I really believe that God wants this to come to light. He wants us to be a holy people. And um, He will unearth this sin and expose it, because He does want us to be holy. Melody, tell me how a church can handle or um, balance, if that's the right word, the needs of a victim and the need of um, the the person who did the abuse to be forgiven. How do we get that wrong sometimes? Because I feel like maybe we do rush to forgiveness sometimes, but at the same, on the same time, we are meant to be a forgiving community. And I, I find that very confusing. Well, I absolutely believe that we should be a forgiving community, but there are long-term consequences to abuse. Mm -hmm. And I think we pray for ministries that do work in prisons, and they are sharing the gospel message in prison. So it's understandable that people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ in prison. And when they come out of prison, they need to find a community of faith that will welcome them. We've written um, a policy on behalf of four churches that they can customize for their churches on how to deal with offenders that come into their church communities and the parameters to put around those mm. offenders. So yes, you for, you know, God forgives them. We welcome them into our communities, but it doesn't mean there are not long-term consequences to that abuse. And that one of those long-term consequences is you are not going to work with children and youth within our faith community. Yeah, yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. I mean, all of our sin, no matter what it is, has consequences. We all know that. Yes. I understand that you are also uh, working on a doctorate exploring the topic of spiritual healing of victims of sexual abuse. I think we'd love to hear about that, Melody. Tell us what your area is within that. Well, I'm studying at University of Toronto at Toronto School of Theology under Wycliffe College. And part of this was born out of some of the stories I started reading of lived experiences of victims of abuse. And knowing that God had entrusted to me the opportunity to work with thousands of churches across Canada. And I've talked to so many victims, survivors of abuse, and they're told to either move on, don't tell your story, forgive the person. Um, You know what, that's too messy to talk about in the church. And they don't have an opportunity often to be able to find healing at the pace that they need to find healing. And I don't think that's a quick journey. I don't think it's something that you can just forgive and get over. 
Now, I absolutely believe in healing. My own tradition is the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and we really believe in um, Jesus Christ as healer. Mm. And so when I hear that someone is irreparably damaged and that they will never find healing, my back goes up because I do know that and believe in a God that heals. But I think that as a church, we aren't always instruments that God can use to heal because we stand in the way of allowing victims to tell their stories and understanding that often with abuse comes coping mechanisms. And we focus sometimes on in the church on those coping mechanisms, whether that is anger or whether that is some kind of substance abuse. We focus so much on those coping mechanisms that we're not getting down to the root issue, which was someone harm that individual as a child. So mm-hmm. my focus is on, now with a doctorate, Karen, you have to keep getting narrower and narrower, you know? Right. So they're, they're really trying to get me to be as narrow as I can with my thesis project. But the focus of my study is what do adult victims of child sexual abuse that have been abused by someone that represented faith in their life need from their communities of faith to nurture their spiritual healing? So that's what my question is. They want me to have it be more narrow than that. So I'll probably pick a specific denomination in Canada Hmm. and focus on that, knowing that I'll be able to apply the learning from that to other denominations in Canada. But my actual thesis statement is that there will be practical theologies in place um, within churches that contribute to the spiritual healing of adult victims of child sexual abuse. So what are those theologies and how can we focus on those? Oh, that sounds really important. When do you anticipate being done, Melody? Oh, about three years ago. (laughs) I probably should not have asked that question. (laughs) The thesis proposal will go in by the end of the month, and then we hope that it'll get approved so I can begin my research this coming year. So I will be wanting then to talk to and research among adult victims of child sexual abuse that were abused by someone who represented faith to them. Okay. Melody, knowing all that you know already from your doctoral work research and all your work with Plan to Protect, what message would you leave with a pastor or a church leader who might be listening to this podcast about what they need to know about the victims that may be sitting in their congregation and what they can do, you know, even next Sunday to help and to bring this out into the open? Well, I've been in church for 60 years, Karen, and I'd, I've been there for morning, evening services, Wednesday evening prayer meetings, and I can't tell you if I've heard more than two sermons in my whole life on the issue of abuse and sexual abuse from the pulpit. So I think we need to look at this from a different perspective. And I can remember when my own eyes were open to this, and I prayed a prayer, sent up one of those quick arrow prayers, mm-hmm. and s- said, Lord, help me see this from your perspective. And help me, give me the compassion that you have for victim survivors of abuse. And um, so I would uh, encourage pastors 
to pray that they would see this from um, a different perspective than just trying to prevent abuse or trying to get insurance coverage. Um, but knowing that having an abuse prevention program with your church is just one small step of demonstrating to the victims in your congregation that you don't want their stories repeated and no other child or vulnerable person should experience what they experienced and allow victim survivors to tell their stories if they want to have their stories told. Um, don't make that decision for them. Let them tell their stories. And then um, be willing to enter into um, lament and um, sorrow and grieving. And if abuse is part of your story as a church, which um, unfortunately I know it is for so many churches, don't sweep it under the carpet. Don't pretend it didn't happen. Um, let your stories be told. Um, and remember those stories because it's in the remembering of the stories that we, I think we are honoring the victims and we are saying we don't want this to happen again. Yeah. Thank you, Melody. If people want to find out about Plan to Protect, if they're, um, you know, one of the few churches in Canada who don't know about you, what do they do? Well, our website is um, Plan to Protect, P L A N. T-O-P-R-O-T-E-C-T, plantoprotect.com. That's our website. Um, we have a school called plantoprotectschool.com, and all of our courses are online at, at the school. Okay, wonderful. Well, Melody, thank you so much for uh, the work you're doing, and, and thanks for sharing with us. Thanks, Karen. It's been great to be with you today. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To listen to more and to subscribe to Faith Today, Canada's Christian magazine, please visit www.theefc.ca forward slash faith today.